0: good news here. Bon appetit. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us in these spaces here this morning. Give us, O Lord, your Holy Spirit to illumine the Word of God to us that we would understand it. Father, give us your Holy Spirit not only this Sunday, but in subsequent ones as we dive into this book, this letter of Paul that I'm super excited to get into. Lord, we need you. And in these moments, in these spaces, would you fill us Bring us into the presence of the crucified and resurrected Christ given for us and for us, our salvation. Spirit, give us hope where we're weak, faith where we're lacking, and victory where we're struggling. Uh, We need you, including now. Be with us, Jesus. We pray for your sake and your glory. Amen. You can be seated. In the fall of 1999... And into 2000, during the debates among nominees for the Republican nomination for president, George W. Bush was asked a question. And for those of you that this morning placed a bet on FanDuel or DraftKings that this was going to be the way Jim was going to start his sermon, you have won a lot of money. Here we go. GW was asked this question as the question went to the other candidates as well. Some of you might actually remember what he said here. What philosopher has most influenced you? What philosopher has most influenced you? And I I remember watching and reading at the time about this. I did go back and verify that this is what GW said, but the clip was not dated very well, so I I didn't get This week, visual and aural verification about what the other candidates said. You might wonder, Jim, did you go back and spend tens of hours scrubbing through Republican nomination debates in 99 and 2000? I want you to know that the answer is no. I definitely did not do that. But as I recollect, what is your most influential philosopher? Going down the line of candidates, people said stuff like this. Plato. Marcus Aurelius from ancient times. And then somebody else may have said, Immanuel Kant. And then it came to George W. Bush. Most influential philosopher, and this was his answer, Christ, because he changed my heart. Most influential philosopher, Christ, because he changed my heart. And at the time, that was a polarizing answer that he gave, Back then, and I imagine in this room there are varying opinions about people that like George W. Bush, people that might not like George W. Bush. That's totally okay. For some of you, your memory might be so fuzzy that all you're thinking is, why did he always try and imitate Will Ferrell? I don't understand that bit about George W. Bush. But for those that like George W. Bush, they love that answer. And their thinking was, yeah, the guy's a Christian, and so he just talked about it. Why wouldn't he? And what you see is what you get with that guy. He's transparent, he's honest, he's authentic, he doesn't do politician speak. It's a great answer. But then others who were predisposed not to like GW went in the other direction and said and felt things like, this guy is a rube. He's a total simpleton. Okay, he believes in Jesus, that's great, but that wasn't even the question. And then for the the more critical of George W. Bush, Has this guy ever read a book in his life? And this is proof of it right here. He can't name one single philosopher. Where do I stand on what GW said? Well, a couple of different levels. At one level, I think I would agree with the critics. That wasn't the question. He was answering, he was giving a different answer than the one about which he was asked. The question was trying to get at intellectual roots and not talk about personal journeys or experiences there. I think that's fair. Although my, the other part of my cynical brain would have loved some follow-up questions to the other candidates. You mentioned Plato, sir. Is it the platonic epistemology or metaphysics that you think best informs his political philosophy? Or, oh, Immanuel Kant. We can get to the politics, but how do you square what he says in his critique of pure reason with critique of practical reason? Please tell us more, since this is the philosophers that most influence. I would have loved those sorts of interactions and follow-ups. They didn't happen. Be that as it may, the question was about intellectual roots. GW did not go in that direction. However, from another perspective, I can think of one guy that probably would have been very comfortable with the answer that George W. Bush gave. So speaking of Saturday Night Live, if we could do an unfrozen caveman lawyer on the Apostle Paul, bring him forward, and let him hear George W. Bush's answer there. Most influential philosopher in your life. George W. Bush says, Christ, because he changed my heart, I think the Apostle Paul would have said something like I don't know much about modern political structures and this debate system, but I do know this. If this man is a follower of Jesus and he's asked a question like this, that's exactly what you should say. Of course, because Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. And whether it's most influential philosopher or most influential anything of any kind, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's got to be your answer, right? That's what you should say. And whether then or now, a contrasting view would be something like this. A little Jesus is fine at best, but we are large and contain multitudes. There are so many different aspects of our personhood and who we are. We have so many different selves that we need lots of different influencers for our lots of different selves. Okay, Jesus is great maybe for my spiritual self, however you define that, but then I also have my political self, my ideological self, my financial self, my lifestyle self, my professional self, my fitness self, my sexual self, my mindfulness self, my wellness self, my scientific self, my intellectual self. And I just need more coverage across all of those things. The Apostle Paul, who among other letters wrote to the church at Colossae, and that's where we're digging in here this morning. I believe comes back and says, "Well, what you need for all of those selves, same sign for all of them. You need Jesus because Jesus is everything. Because Jesus is absolutely everything. And last pass at Apostle Paul plus George W. Bush. I think if anything, the Apostle Paul would have heard a comment like that from George W. Bush. And they have said something like, yeah, that's true. Of course you should say Christ because he changed my heart. But if anything, that's too small. Should Jesus change your heart? Absolutely so. But he changes so much more. In fact, Jesus changes everything. Zoom out just a little bit. As we think about what the Holy Scriptures, Old and New Testaments, have to say about how we are formed as people, a biblical vision of personhood, we can consider something like this. The Bible teaches us that we are being formed, we are being framed, all the time by everything. Everything that you do, everything that you choose, Everything in which you engage, like it or not, realize it or not, has a formative influence on who you are. What you consume, what you listen to, what you read, what you watch, forms you. What you spend, your resources, your energy, your money, how much you shop and how, and so on. Those things form you. Where you work and how. Where you rest and how. For you individually, for you in the context of a family. All of those vocations and avocations shape you. And here's the question that we're going to be talking about not only for this Sunday as we think about Paul's letter to the Colossian church But in one way or another, I hope every Sunday after this, is if you're a Christian, how does Jesus relate to every aspect of your life? If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, how does Jesus relate not just to some selves of yours, but to all selves? How does Jesus, for you, relate to... To absolutely everything how are you being formed and whether you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus or not or somewhere in between nobody can say I choose not to be formed and have that mean anything because we always are if you're not being formed by Jesus what are you being formed by but later on in the letter. the Colossians, Paul will say something about Jesus like this. He is the image of the invisible God, Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus is everything. Is he your everything? So two parts from here for the rest of the sermon. We're going to be talking about just the first two little verses from the letter to the Colossians. We're going to be talking about hints, and then we're going to be talking about themes. So hints and themes, we're going to thread back to this question, how does Jesus for you relate to absolutely everything? Hints. When you start letters of Paul here in the New Testament, in the beginning, very often, you get little teasers of various kinds about where Paul is going. And some of these introductions to letters... There are a lot of formalities and formalisms where you can't draw too much from it, but then on the other hand, things peek through. Probably the chief example of this, if you go to another level of letter of Paul, is his letter to the Galatian church. When Paul is really getting pretty fired up, talking to the Galatians because he feels like they're being deceived in some crucial ways, so Paul is coming in hot. Paul, an apostle. Not from men nor through men, but from God. Paul is saying at the very beginning... I didn't come from human influence. I am coming from God to you. And then also in the introduction, he dispenses with any blessing or thanksgiving and just goes to the critical stuff because it's so important to him. But we get hints, whether it's Galatians or also here, of identities of Paul and of the recipients at Colossae. An identity, not coincidentally, is something that I've been thinking about a lot. So permit me this sidebar here. For us as modern people, kids, students, young adults, adult adults, older adults, identity is a really big thing. Who are we? Who are we? I mentioned the free book at the beginning of the service, Prodigal God by Tim Keller. He was a pastor, writer, author, speaker in New York City for a lot of years. He died earlier this year. And... I listened to some interviews from people that knew him, including from a guy that wrote a biography that had come out in the winter about Tim Keller, saying, hey, tell me more about this guy. And one of the things that the author said, he was asked the question, was Tim working on some stuff that he didn't get to finish or get to publish? And the author of the biography, and the biography is actually really good if you want to read it. It's an intellectual and spiritual history or journey of Keller. He said, of course. Keller was working on a ton of stuff, and there was one thing, and he said, yeah, we're going to try to package and publish as much as we can to sort of get out some of his final thoughts on things, even though we're heartbroken that he's not here anymore. But he said there was one project that was his Moby, my words, not his, Moby Dick, the one big thing that he wanted to get out because he knew he had, for a while, that he had terminal cancer, and he said it was a book on identity formation. He said, Tim foresaw that this was going to be the next big thing that's already here that Christian thinkers really needed to dig into. That who am I question. Isn't it the case that we will spend, have spent, are spending, will spend a ton of time and energy, money, resources of various kinds, stress and anxiety, into the who am I question. And if anything, the the cardinal rule of this cultural moment is you've got to know who you are and be who you are at all times. That is your life's purpose and goal. Identify who you are and be that person. That is the end-all, be-all in so many different ways. But then in addition to that, we'll define, we'll curate, we'll polish, we'll change, again and again and again, that question. That's true of us in various ways. There's been various studies that have gone on here and there, sociologists, behavioral psychologists, et cetera, that talk about how workplace environments have changed over time. And this is not true of every workplace environment, but by and large, if 20 or 30 years ago, the idea was you leave your life at home and at work you only work, more and more, the idea is the opposite, where you bring all of who you are. Here's, here's a Jim is old moment. My oldest son, Josiah, is packing to go to college today again. I'm driving him up after the service. And he, was, he wanted to bring a couple of, of coffee mugs, and he grabbed one of Emily's to bring back with him, and he grabbed one of Emily's mugs and said, Mom, this, this mug is so millennial. <laughs> so, Yeah just made me think I'm really old if millennials are now dated as old people beneath me. But anyway, workplace environments changing over time where you don't want to work in an environment that doesn't let you be fully who you are. And you need a work environment where you're asked questions not only about the deadline, but about what you're doing this weekend or what your travel plans are and what uh, personal time off can be in, in various connections. One author who studied these things put it this way, relating to workplaces needing to be places where your identity can flourish. A decade or two ago, identity formation, friendship, meaning-making, and political agitation were much more likely to be things we did on nights and weekends. Now, they're central to work. Or, At a larger level, a uh, Spanish sociologist Manuel Castells said this, the search for identity, collective or individual, ascribed or constructed, has become the fundamental source of social meaning. Identity is becoming the main and sometimes the only source of meaning. So it might seem intuitively to us in this cultural moment, yeah, what else as far as purpose is there for me to do except identity discovery? That wasn't always the case for finding purpose in life around the world and throughout the ages. It's become now. Put a pin in that. We'll return to it multiple times this sermon series. But as we think about the identity of Paul, for example, Paul, an apostle by the will of God, the letter begins here. Who is Paul? Well, he's an apostle by the will of God. That's what Colossians 1.1 says. An apostle is an authoritative representative who's sent, in this case, sent by God, not by the will of people. Paul was not in a democracy elected apostle. He was appointed by Jesus Christ. And if you don't know the story, you can go back and read from Acts chapter 9. The Apostle Paul was not always on Team Jesus. In fact, he was the opposite. He was ethnically a Jewish person, but then also a Roman soldier that was persecuting the church to the point of death. But then one day on the famous Damascus Road, the risen Jesus appeared to Paul in a vision. His name at that point was Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so the chief persecutor of the church became the chief leader of the church. If the Apostle Peter, who was with Jesus, was the primary apostle to the Jewish people of that day, it's Paul that took the mission, the message of Jesus to the Gentiles. So he planted churches, he mentored a lot of people. That's who Paul was. Colossians. What about the identity in this direction? Scholars have said even though it only takes a little bit of creative interpretation to get there, as Paul does here at the beginning of the letter to the Colossians, so he does in many of the letters, he gives the Colossian recipients a double location. The Apostle Paul, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful ones, here's the double location, in Christ at Colossae. Both. Let's take the more literal location first at Colossi. Who knows where Colossi was? Who's who's visited Colossi? Could put it that way. Nobody has because it's been destroyed. It was actually destroyed a long, wait, okay. Well, there's not a McDonald's there. Because it's been destroyed. There there are ruins that, 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 that one can visit. So Colossi was a major town in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, It was on a river, major highway, cosmopolitan city. A lot of different ethnic groups were were there in varying degrees. And we know from ancient records that it was destroyed by an earthquake in the mid-ish 60s AD. So this letter to the Colossian church was not written after Colossae was destroyed. That wouldn't make any sense. And then also, careful readers of the Apostle Paul have noticed that Colossians must be one of the later letters of Paul because it's a more mature expression. A couple of people have heard me say that for me, who has been with and read the letters of Paul for all of my adult life, one of the pleasures of reading Paul year after year after year, all of Paul's letters are are inspired, authoritative, whether it's newer letters or older letters from him, but he matures over time. And you get a little bit of the flavor, ah, this is early Paul. And then later on, he gets a little more complex and subtle in his thought, and his construction. This is one of those later letters. So you put it together. Later letter of Paul, but then also Colossae destroyed. This letter must have come in maybe the early to mid-60s A.D. So if Jesus was crucified and resurrected in the early 30s A.D., Paul is writing about 30 years after the crucifixion and resurrection event of Jesus. That's one location. But the second location, I think, is more interesting and more important. To the saints, at Colossae, in Christ. To the faithful ones, in Christ. And you may or you may not know, but this phrase, in Christ or in him, is an incredibly important phrase in the Apostle Paul. Arguably the most important phrase in all of his letters. And by one count, Paul uses the phrase, in him, about Christ, or the phrase, in Christ, 83 times in all of his different letters, over and over again, if you read the Apostle Paul, in him, in Christ, or that many more than 83 with different words but same concept. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He tells the church, he tells follower of Jesus, if you're in Christ, this is your location. The spiritual GPS, if you would turn it on for yourself, It wouldn't locate you here in Collingswood, New Jersey, as the most important thing, or if you're watching online, wherever you're watching from. If you're in Christ, you're a most important location marker, no matter where you are geographically. Christian, if you are in Christ, that's where you are, that's your location. And that affects everything that you do, everything about you. Your past, your present, your future, that's in Christ. Your public life, your private life, that's in Christ. Your professional life, your family life, I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, that's in Christ. Your creative life, your lifestyle life, your avocational life, no matter what it is all of that is in Christ and that's what must form your identity and that phrase saints is on the 50 yard line hey, there's a football game today as far as would the root meaning of saints come across here to the recipients or is it a phrase that was common enough that people wouldn't have really thought to take a deep dive into the meaning but either way paul beginning of verse two to the saints literally speaking the sanctified ones the ones that are made saints it's an identity statement as paul talks to the church and writes to the church you are saints sanctified ones dedicated ones set apart ones ones that are marked and underscored by christian baptism that he's going to talk about in chapter two you're located in christ if you're a follower of jesus you are set apart dedicated to jesus marked that's who you are no matter where you go, no matter what you do, you bring that identity that's given to you by grace upon you and into whatever you're engaging in. You're not only marked, but you're yoked together. One of the most quietly revolutionary phrases in all of the Pauline letters to the saints and the faithful brothers, which in that context, Paul knew that he was writing to men and women, so would have been heard to br- by as brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters is who you are in Christ. You're not marked, dedicated, set apart individually. You're marked, dedicated, set apart collectively. You might not think about this, but if you're telling a friend or a neighbor about your church, I don't know anybody that's ever said when you're talking about somebody at church to somebody who's not at church, One of my church co-workers said this, and it was really funny. Or a church colleague of mine happened to be saying. But you might just say somebody at my church, or if you want to be more specific or more descriptive, you might say one of my church brothers or sisters. And so whether then or now, across political divides, across ethnic divides, across deep prejudices of different kinds, the church is the place on earth Where the dividing wall of hostility, as Paul talks in another letter in Ephesians chapter 2, has been torn down so that Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the reality of the crucifixion and resurrection, is building one new body, one new person, so to speak, the church, one new collective, out of all of these different broken pieces that might not even like each other. But you know what he is? You know what she is? That's your brother, that's your sister. And we work and we press towards that. And it's all by grace. Because Jesus has torn down that dividing wall between us and between us and God. We who are offending God by our sin, rebelling against him, Jesus said, put that rebellion and offense on me on the cross. I'll pay for it here. Cancel the debt. So it's gone. For anybody and everybody that comes to me. That's what Jesus says. So that's who you are. And I would encourage you How does everything in your life relate to Jesus? Because that's where you're already located. Christian, be where you are. You're in Christ. If you're somebody who's been following Jesus for a little while, or maybe not so long, but you're you're at a rough spot faith-wise, or you're not sure where, you're maybe a little bored by all this Jesus stuff. Maybe, I'm not saying definitely, but maybe... The reason that you're a little bored by Jesus right now is that Jesus is not radical enough for you. And the real Jesus is super radical. Maybe you don't realize that Jesus is asking far more of you than you're giving him right now. And that for Jesus to be more of a Lord of your life, that calls you and causes you to do really difficult things. And then all of a sudden Jesus becomes more interesting. Oh, I'm less bored. Because there's more of a weight of demand upon me because Jesus has already given me his everything on the cross by grace. So so those are some hints at less length theme. Jesus is everything. He's everything. I think at the beginning of our worship folder, our reflection quote comes from one of the commentators I'm looking at for the book of Colossians, who puts it this way. Paul's vision begins and ends with King Jesus. His message in Colossians can be reduced to, God has conquered the powers, delivered all humans from sin and its powers, and reconciled the entire cosmos to himself in, through, and under Christ. It's all about King Jesus. And if it's all about King Jesus, we live it out. Paul says at the beginning of his third chapter, if you've been raised with Christ, that's another locative, location-type phrase, if you've been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, location. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And that makes a difference. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, but then put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. And under the lordship of Jesus, learn the perfect freedom of absolute subjection to Christ. The perfect freedom of absolute subjection. This plays out in marriage, for example. Husband, wife. If you're upset with your marriage because there's not enough, you're not getting what you want enough in your marriage. Part of the deal is that you need to turn around that Rubik's Cube and understand that in marriage it's less about what you give what you receive, but more about what you give. And there's joy in serving the other person. That's where you find your identity. That's where you find who you are. Marriage or otherwise. We are our best selves not as we're receiving, but as we're giving. That's what God has called us to be. And if we're not relating everything back in our lives to Jesus and being formed by him, let's just talk about brand X for a minute and then we'll close. There is a brand X going on in Colossians. This is one of the things that attracted me to this letter for this fall. The brand X, what Paul, not as ardently as he's pushing back or vehemently or critically as he's doing in the book of Galatians, he's not as angry and fired up here but scholars have talked about there's something here that Paul is pressing against in Colossae that's been called at different times the Colossian heresy or the Colossian error. That's what Brandex is. Nobody knows exactly what it is, but we're just putting together clues from the letter. It seems to be some combination. We'll talk about this more of some Christian thought, some Judaic thought, going back to whoever said Plato in that debate, some Platonic thought, some ancient Greek thought, In some loose mixture that was over-influencing, over-determining the identity of the Colossians at the church. But the fact that it's a little loose of a mixture, I think suits us for application purposes very well, because there's some overlap. A couple of quick hits to prime the pump for what we're going to be talking about later. What, What was influencing people at Colossae? Well, there are all these different ideas coming from different sources, that issued forth to people that were under the thrall of this, your life is one big series of playing do's and don'ts in an operation-style game. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. If you want to be accepted and acceptable, do this, don't do that. And it depends on what group you want to be acceptable to. Here's the rules. You've got to follow them. And you need to be this person Your identity is shown by doing this and not doing that, doing that and not doing this, over and over and over again. But Paul says Jesus is a law of perfect freedom and not a yoke. Also, there is this weird mixture influencing the Colossian church, and this is related. Super, super strict do's and don'ts on one hand, but absolute laxity on the other hand. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's the other in this weird combination, inconsistently. Scholars and sociologists and they have different takeaways or opinions about this, but have noted that when it comes to our bodies, this age to previous ones, things have flipped when it comes to food and sex. And those are things that we might not normally equate with one another, but think about it in this way. Like Victorian England, for example. Very, very strict about sex. Lots of do's and don'ts, to the point where, you know, was it a, you know unhealthy culture when it came to sex? Probably, because it was so strict in so many different ways. But food, eat whatever you want. And the richer you are, the fatter you are, because like, hey, you know, everything is good, and just eat, 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 no restrictions there at all. 2023, late modern west, total flip, where a lot of us have very, very definite ideas about what to do with our bodies vis-a-vis food, For nutritional reasons, for ethical reasons, et cetera, I'm not saying those things are bad, but far be it from us to restrict sexual practice at all. That's whatever you want. Notice that flip. As it was in the Colossian church, we're not sure what the X's and Y's were, but similar thing, super strict, super lax. And then also this weird combination too, and this is the last thing I'll say about the Colossian error as far as we can learn about it for now, coming back other sermons. A weird combination again of hyper-rationality and a ton of superstition. Hyper-rationality you know, don't, don't think about things that we can't see and touch as having any reality at all The only reality we have is what we can see through a telescope or a microscope. It's only science all the time, only logic all the time, only materialism all the time. But then there's a spirit world. And there's a superstition that if you do this in quite the wrong way, if the moons are not aligning in a certain way, or the the patterns of waxing and waning, you might be in trouble. And isn't it the case today, I think, as well, where, you know, Only microscope, only telescope all the time on one hand. Jim, I don't want to hear about your Christian spirituality. Who knows? It's ephemeral. We can't define it. We can't touch it. We can't see it. But have we given up superstition as a culture? No way. It's actually gotten a lot more. And so we'll talk about some of these similarities and overlaps in different ways. But the result is, if this is the way that we're living our lives, we are pastiche people. Where we just go through the weird combinations of our cultural smorgasbord buff- buffet. If anybody's been to Amish country, you know the smorgas- you know what I'm talking about, the, uh, the, the Amish buffet. All these weird foods that are somehow all together on this giant con- conveyor belt. We just pick and choose, pick and choose, pick and choose. But what it seemed like was happening in Colossae, similar here one more time, it breeds communities of competition where there is tons of pressure to perform and conform. Communities of competition where there is a ton of pressure to perform and conform. Where it's on you, where all of your friends could become your enemies at any moment. Where now you're in, but you could be unfriended or canceled at any point. And if you say the wrong thing at the wrong person at the wrong time, that can be used against you. Where there is competitive community, where our comrades are also our competitors. And then also, as there is so much pressure upon us to define who we are at every given moment, that creates performance anxiety and a whole world of stress. But the alternative here for the Colossian church, the alternative here for us, is that instead of a competitive community, by grace we can be formed into a community where we call each other brother and sister. Because Jesus has died on the cross and has risen again, that's not a community of competition, that's a community of gratitude, of service of self-giving for the sake of others. When we don't have to constantly self-define because we're already defined in Jesus. And that's not a pressure to, for, to perform identity, it's already given to us. And because Jesus is Lord not only of a little bit, but of a lot bit, because Jesus is everything. Under a gracious God and in a loving, gracious community, We work it out. We ask, how does everything in my life relate to Jesus? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, The odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post Sunday Blues, a preaching post mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.